Hey, this is Hope Larson, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. disgruntled paramedic in the narrative <laughs> not realizing you know like 300 pages later they're gonna need to get somewhere fast and illegally yeah and so they called their buddy the disgruntled paramedic who's like what do something off the radar absolutely let me just turn off the gps matter of fact let me break it <laughs> here are your hosts jamie green and justin connors This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast, as well as Twitter at the GBB Podcast. And brand new as of today, I think we're putting it out today. Sure. TheGBBPodcast.com. Oh, oh, it's finally here. Can you can you put in like celebratory like noisemaker sounds here? Yes, I will. Okay. I will. Like a, like a, I'll do like a faint, like three people cheer. Like, yes. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So we're we're back and I guess we're I guess we haven't gone anywhere but this is the first episode we've recorded in a, since before Christmas I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. We've had we had a toward the end of the year we had a a backlog, which was mm-hmm. nice because you know people don't want to do interviews and stuff over the holidays, so it was hard. It's hard to schedule people, so it's it was nice to not sort of feel a panic that like oh my god we're gonna run out of content. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So you, you, and uh, we have a guest host as well today, Shiri. Welcome back. You've been on here before. Thank you. And yes, it's great. Well, it's fantastic (laughs) when people can step in and, and frankly, uh, come at an interview with more intelligence than I can provide. So (laughs) we're we're just not we're not going to pretend. We're just going to say how it is. Um, So you both interviewed uh, somebody this week. Why don't you tell us about the interview and let us know how it went? So we uh, we had on Daniel Jose Older, and I'm gonna step back here and let Shiri do a, a, a bulk of the intro. But um, I, I'm just gonna be straight up honest in that I really kind of first um, became aware of him at New York Comic Con last year, uh, and there was um, the new one of the new Star Wars books, which was from a certain point of view, which was a uh, to celebrate, I think we've talked about it on here before, but it was it's a to celebrate the 40th anniversary of A New Hope, and they brought together 40 blah, 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 authors to write 40 different stories, um, and uh, each one sort of took place between the scenes of one, of the film or went into the backstory of some of the characters. So it was sort of like what the expanded universe was always known for, like diving deep into these characters who only had two seconds of screen time. But it was remarkably well done. Um, and I think of the 40 stories, Shiri and I have talked about this, I think 38 of them were like, home run, not home runs, but 38 of them were like solid A for me. Oh, yeah. 30, I would, I, yeah, 38 of them were definitely in the very good to excellent category. Yeah. Um, I was, the, 
the two I didn't love were ones I expected to really like because of who the writers were. Mm-hmm. Um, but 38 out of 40 in an anthology is pretty darn it, good. It's, so. it's great numbers. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to talk about those two because I... I, I think we, <laughs> at least one of them is we sh- we share. I don't know. I don't know which two are for you. But um, anyway, in all that saying is that um, Daniel Jose Older wrote probably my favorite story in that book. Um, and, and we would like him and Mallory Ortberg, who wrote n- a, a sort of similarly set story uh, to write a collection together, which is Tales of Imperial HR. Yes. Because they both wrote, he wrote, his was um, formatted sort of as a, an incident report from the stormtroopers who let Obi-Wan and Luke pass them in the speeder to get into Mos Eisley in the first place. Nice. And hers, (laughs) hers was an HR complaint from one of the admirals that Vader force choked, but didn't kill. (laughs) To yeah. his superiors about why this was awful and how Vader should be <laughs> reprimanded and punished yeah. for having violated his rights as yeah. an Imperial Admiral. So they were both fantastic. They were two of my favorites. Yeah, they were just, they were phenomenally well done. And like, you, know, you think about that and you're like, an, an incident report, really? Or like a letter to HR? Come on. But they were just so well done. They were so funny, but still so respectful of the material and of, of Star Wars that they were just they were just a joy to read. Um, but Older is, um, again, this is where I, I show my ignorance, is that like I wasn't aware of him before that book. Um, but he, you know, now I've got all of his books on my my Kindle and I'm, I want to just tear right through all of them. So Sherry, why don't you pick up here and you can give a little bit of backstory. Well, my favorites, um, are his Bone Street Rumbo books, which are, they're urban fantasy and the last, what did I say, Jamie? The last three or four years, yeah. um, they've been the first, the, inst- the new installment has been the first book I read every year. I was kind of bummed he didn't have a new one this year because <laughs> um, it broke my tradition. And it's, you know, it's interesting because comparing his Star Wars story to those, part of what he writes about in this series is the bureaucracy of the dead and who's in charge and what ghosts, what types of ghosts are allowed to do what. Um, but it's all steeped very much in various um Latin and South American cultures, so Cuba and Mexico, um some of the even some of the Aztec and Maya traditions, the what I think is the Yoruba tradition, but I'm not, I could be wrong. Some Santoria. Um and it's just it's it's fascinating stuff. You get a lot of cultural education um in with the story and something that we talked about also on the podcast is he's really a master of making the setting its own character. Um, these books could not happen anywhere except New York and specific parts of New York. Um, and they're just, they're some of my favorite. He started with a, a short story anthology and then moved on to the three novels. And I'm hoping there are going to be more. Um, and then he also ha- is in the process of writing a young adult series that I think is also urban fantasy called Shadow Shapers, which I have not read yet. 
um, but I should. <laughs> I think the second one is coming out relatively soon. Didn't he tell us that? Um, I think that isn't the second one already out. Or it just came out. Yeah. yeah. See, this is this is where we show our listeners how much research we've done before we no, just yeah, start talking. <laughs> he's also um, he's also a musician, so we talked a little bit about how those two arts and disciplines work together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really wish that there was video because he talks with his hands a lot, um, and it's kind of the cadence of the musician storyteller thing as he's talking with his hands. Um, you can probably hear some of it because yeah. <laughs> he was slapping his hands together and <laughs> hit the table a few times. Um, but it's actually fascinating to watch him talk as well as listen to him talk because I think you get some of the integration of the musician and the storyteller yeah. watching him talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shad, the second book, I just want to throw this out there. The second book is already out. It came out last September. So there's two books in the Shadow Shaper series so far. Um, wow. Gotta get reading. Yeah, I know. The, yeah. the list grows ever longer. I know. It's, it's amazing. Like, if, especially the amount. This is not about the interview at all. But the amount that, ja- like, Jamie, you read more than any human. I think I know. No, I, I don't. I don't. Shiri does. <laughs> okay, Shiri. <laughs> I hey, bow to her. I, her reading I, time. I, I can't imagine how long your list must be, and like how you have to add to it, and you know. My goal I, this year is to read this chair. Wow. <laughs> well, you have to explain what that looks like for everybody listening. <laughs> Oh, it's as tall as me. Um, lots of novels, some nonfiction, some trade paperbacks, a little bit of everything. I love uh, it. I love to. Yeah, it's amazing. I love to read too, and I just, I just don't do it, and that's awful. I need to correct myself. Yeah, my- well, right now I'm reading Walter Isaacson's um, biography of Da Vinci, which is awesome. Yeah, my my problem is that. Um, because my day job, like the full-time job that pays the bills requires reading, excuse me, reading all day. Right. I'm an editor. So like I edit books. It's like when, when I finally quote unquote clock out, it's like, do I want to read more or do I want to just sit and veg out and watch something on Netflix? And that's usually what I end up doing. (laughs) And for today, the answer is yes. You want to read. Yeah. I want to read uh, Daniel Older's book. I want to read everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. We're going to go play that interview for you right now. Hope you enjoy. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, I guess, you know, I, I start off by asking a lot of authors whether there was an aha moment for them to either, you know, when they wanted to become writer, uh, become a writer or, you know, or in your case, when you were working on your books, you know, when you were working on Shadow Shaper or the Bone Street Rumba, like, as you were conceiving them as they were like formulating in your mind into what they would become, like, was there an aha moment for you and be like, ah, this is what it is. Or this is who that character is. Or do they just evolve? Um, it's definitely both, um, which I think is sort of true of life, right? Like you have these moments that are like, and then they're also the, what we kind of miss about them is that they're also the culmination of many small non type moments that, um, you know, that aren't as dramatic. And then I think that sort of becomes a question of how, as writers, do we put that into a story in a way that feels true and also, you know, feels dramatic and exciting. So all that is definitely on my mind as I create. One that I can tell you about that for some reason popped into my mind recently, actually, with Shadow Shaper was that I had this magic really clear. I had a lot of it really clear in my head um, from pretty early on. 
you know, the world and Sierra showed up with a very complete personality right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I, I wanted to play with this idea of, of, of murals coming to life. Um, but there was something about it that didn't quite pop still um, at a certain point in one of the drafts. And I just remember being at the gym, actually, and having this image of Sierra, like, slapping the pavement really hard yeah. with one hand. And that kind of causing the effect of like the of the murals really coming to life and the spirits moving through her and that action uh, of it being like a really action based like physical movement um, did really kind of like make the, something click and I was like okay now I can see it you know like now because before that it was kind of just a little bit too woo woo and like oh yeah and then the spirits come to life I'm not sure how yeah but like I guess I touch it. But when it became this, like, almost like a superhero movie, just being like, bam, you know, and then they burst to life, um, just that simple change really did kind of cascade into, like, what shadow shaping really became. Yeah. Do you think that's something that's normal, though? That, like, that one moment where you're like, oh, that's it. Even though it was just, like, one scene, and you're like, I can yeah. see it so clearly, and then everything totally. else came from that. Is that is that normal for your process? Yeah, there's usually a tipping point in different aspects. Um, I write without an outline, mm. so I I call it the catapult method. method where like I, I kind of <laughs> yeah, you can already get the image. Basically, like I sit in the seat of the catapult and I look out across the vast you know wastelands or whatever, and I'm like, I think I want to go in that direction, and then I cut the cord. And I go ah! <laughs> fly out over the landscape, <laughs> and but but there's a there is a method to the madness because usually. Well, really, at the halfway mark of any book is when the ending really has to start to clarify. I don't know it point by point yet, but that's when you're setting up the ending is right at that halfway moment. Um, and then, it, you know, and then you do want to kind of gather momentum as you're going. And ideally, somewhere in there, there's like this tipping point. And usually what happens is what happened with Shadow House Fall, the sequel to Shadow Shaper, very clearly was that somewhere in that early half, um, an image, a single second of the final fight became very very clear to me and i had no idea this is i built that mythology as i was writing it everything was happening as i was writing but i knew i was running towards this one moment uh, where sierra does one very particular thing and says something and i knew it was such a badass moment and i knew that if i could build up the story to reach that moment and for that moment to really make sense everything would work yeah (laughs) so i was writing towards that moment and then everything kind of and that's all i needed i just needed that thing so that was very much like a tipping point. And then I was like, all right, now I got it. Now I got to build this in that direction, ease things over that way so that when we land here, it really does land. Yeah. You're a musician also, right? Yes. Do you have those same sort of moments with music or is it a different sort of mental process? It is. It's similar. It's very similar. And I, and I take a lot from music when I think about prose. Um, Certainly in terms of things, especially I think a lot, it's interesting because I think silence is really important um, to music and to writing. And I think it's something we don't always give enough credit to Um, because silence is really how we start to understand rhythm. Right. It's like through breaks of things like that's when we stop and we key into it without breaks. Everything just starts to feel like it. it's just kind of a it almost just all falls into itself and you don't really pause. Um, so, you know, in those moments, like when a song, everything stops or when it's a breakdown, maybe, and it just goes to the to the beat, you know, and then the bass comes in, things like that. And I think that can transpose in a way into prose, you know, if we're thinking musically, um, which, by the way, sometimes is a conscious process and sometimes it's just the way that my brain works. And I'll look back and be like, 
oh, that's almost like a musical thing that was happening right there. Um, so there's layers, but also the, the concept of tension, right, is so key to music um, in terms of chord and harmony, you know, and how things fit together and how chords play out. And then they, um, you know, tension is caused in music when notes are close together. Um, to the point that, you know, there's this idea that this this concept of the tritone, which was so dissonant that people used to think it was satanic in medieval times, um, but it was all over the blues. Right. And, and, and it's all over, you know, pop music, too, because it, it, it has to resolve to the one. And I think we're always playing with those principles, both in micro and macro terms in fiction, um, in a scene or even in a paragraph where there's like building senses of tension, micro tension, macro tension, and then they resolve or they don't resolve, and then they push us into the next scene. Do you think that if you didn't have that musical background or that musical understanding, do you think that you would write differently? I mean, because it sounds like, from what you're saying, it sounds like that musicality informs how you write. It does. Um, I think I might just I might write very similarly, but not have an understanding of what I was doing. Yeah. Because a lot of it is sort of being like, oh, that's like that. But that does change it because once you understand it, then you can kind of develop it differently. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you you talked about silence and how the you know the importance of silence. Does that also translate to silence while you're writing? Do you do you need silence when you write, or nope. do you listen to music? No, no. <laughs> I need music. Yeah? <laughs> Reddit in silence drives me slightly up the wall. Like, I've had to do it once or twice, but... And then, God forbid, you're sitting in a coffee shop and you forget your, you know, headphones and they're playing fast music or... <laughs> or someone's having, like, a really interesting, a.k.a. fascinatingly uninteresting conversation nearby or, or breaking up or something. <laughs> ah! um, which is maybe good for your next book because you're taking notes on people's yeah. terrible lives. I've done that. I actually once bought a couple dinner because their conversation was so interesting and I knew I was going to use it in a book. And it was this really beautiful. Um, it was these two lesbians of color and they were having this like gorgeous like meeting and they had clearly like met on a dating site and we're just like having an amazing night. And I was just sitting there like trying not to listen, <laughs> but their whole conversation was so perfect. And I have two characters that it reminded me. I was like, this is definitely going to be in a book. And then so I just went up and paid for their dinner. Well, so how do you do that? Like, how do you go up and basically admit that you've been eavesdropping on their entire evening? <laughs> I just was like, look, I'm a writer and you guys are just a beautiful couple. And I really appreciate your conversation. And your dinner's on me. And I'll see you later. Like, That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could have been really creepy. And I acknowledge that, too. And it, it wasn't. And I also just made sure to, like, leave right there. So I wasn't, like, trying to hang out with them or anything. I was just like, this is that. And I was out. I don't recommend doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and now and now I'm just going to go back over here, sit at my table, and continue to listen. So carry right. on. <laughs> right, right. I did it at the end. I finished my dinner first, and then I was like, I got y'all. But um, to answer your question, I do listen to music, and I notice that I listen to different music when I'm writing versus when I'm conceptualizing. Because mm. um, like a lot of writers, it's hard. There are times, actually, when I can do it, but it, generally I, I, it's either got to be instrumental or just in a different language that I don't understand yeah. so that the words aren't kind of jumbling up my own words. Oh, that's not always true. And I will say that someone remixed um, the Biggie album Life After Death with Star Wars music. And oh, wow. it's called Life After Death Star. And it's amazing. Like, it's so good. And uh, I listen to that all the time when I've read the Star Wars book. But generally, like, you, you know, I, I try to listen to, like, either jazz or like trip hop techno like yeah. house music different things that like will just just have a lot of rhythm and push forward yeah um, but then when i'm thinking about a story 
it, it, it can be whatever. Like, it, it really spans. I'll make playlists, and they just span from, like, hip-hop to grunge to classical and everything in between, and it, it, it's just different things like that. Yeah. Since you mentioned Star Wars, um, <laughs> did you, first of all, I want to know, and I, I actually tweeted this to you and Mallory a couple weeks ago, oh. when we're getting the Tales from Imperial HR short story collection. <laughs> oh. Because those were my two favorite stories in the oh, whole book. And I know Jamie so liked them too. Yeah. I appreciate that. That really means a lot to me because that's a phenomenal book. And uh, I know I, there was a lot of heavy hitters in there. And it was an honor to be in it, period. But yes, that would be amazing. I mean, <laughs> tell the people because I, I could talk about most of my books are like the bad guy is bureaucracy. Like, so as soon as I landed on that as a concept, I was just like, I got this because I was a paramedic for 10 years. And people are always like, that's directly where that format of the story in um, in certain point of view comes from is because I filled out incident reports, you know, for all kinds of bullshit that like really wasn't an incident. Yeah. And that was my voice writing incident reports, just being like, these motherfuckers, like I'm really going <laughs> to explain this shit. We can swear on this podcast. Absolutely. Right? It's fine. I'm <laughs> a nurse. I'm a nurse for oh. my day job. So I totally get it. You get it. Like, <laughs> And people, always, I don't know if this happens to you, but people always go, oh my God, that must be so stressful. Like people are dying in front of you. And I'm like, you know, the stressful part isn't the people dying. That's your job. Like you are, you know, that's literally like what you do and what you're good at. So, you know, that's what you're there for. And I find it the opposite of stressful in a weird way. Not that I enjoy watching people die, but I enjoy helping them. That's what, you know, you're there for. But the bullshit that you have to put up with over any random little like, whatever and then it doesn't fit into perfectly into the stupid box of nonsense and then suddenly you got to fill out reams of paperwork to explain yeah. it to someone who doesn't understand it anyway and never will but and but that, the person the person didn't die i saved them but you didn't do it right right but you, but you didn't do it according to protocol exactly right? a protocol which maybe um just came into effect yesterday and has everything to do with business and nothing to do with healing yeah um that is in effect like the entirety of the bone street roomba which is my adult urban fantasy series, is really about dealing with the bureaucracy of death. Um, to the point that they actually start a whole revolution to destroy it because it's so annoying. And I'm so tired of people being like, well, technically, I'm not sure if it fits into the particular box that, you know, and you're like, man, shut the fuck up. Let me do my job and just stay away from me, you know. I was I was actually just telling Jamie not to fangirl too much, but they they have coincided with the new year coming out for the most part, I've noticed. And so yeah. it's the past three years, it's been the first book I've read every year. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Did you notice that the series also begins and ends on New Year's Eve? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, which I didn't know when I started writing it. But as I was as I was finishing the last book, Battle Hill Bolero, and I came towards the end and I was like, wait a minute, there's like a full circle thing happening in a number of ways. And then I was like, wait, this battle happens on Christmas and this is a couple of days later, then it's, oh, shit. <laughs> it's, it's literally exactly two year span to the day yeah which is amazing because and that's one of the things i love about writing without uh, uh without an outline i was just gonna like say that. that's got to be like these realizations like must dawn on you more often than you probably care to admit because you're not writing ready with an outline it's very organic i'm very proud of it i, I have no problem admitting it. it's amazing <laughs> i mean I, I think um george r. r martin calls it gardening for a reason you know i mean there's the, he famously talked about the architect versus the gardener um, in terms of process, and as we, the gardeners, love that moment when we plant a seed and then it flowers and we didn't even realize that that's what was happening 
but we do it knowing we can't you know there's all kinds of things that i'll do in the beginning of a book with no concept of when i might need you know a random disgruntled paramedic in the narrative <laughs> not realizing you know like 300 pages later they're gonna need to get somewhere fast and illegally yeah and so they called their buddy the disgruntled paramedic who's like what do something off the radar? Absolutely. Let me just turn off the GPS. Matter of fact, let me break it. <laughs> it comes in handy. But life is like that, you know. Um, I, I know we've kind of been all over the place here, and I know uh, Shiri wants to go back and talk about Bone Street Rumba, but yeah. since she already brought up Star Wars, I'm going to run with that for a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, when you were first approached for the From a Certain Point of View, I kind of have an idea, but... but let me know how it worked. Like, did they just have like a list of characters or scenes and like people uh, got first dibs? Like, how did that work yeah, for who got what? That, that worked. Well, first of all, I thought you were going to say you kind of had an idea of my reaction, which did involve many, many, many F-bombs. <laughs> that sent directly to my agent. And then he was like, I'm tempted to just forward this to the Star Wars people. <laughs> uh, because you guys don't understand, like, Star Wars is my number one fandom of all time. Like, Everything else is really second best, except maybe Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh yes. And like, I, but you know, I grew up watching Star Wars. You know, I was born in '80. Return of the Jedi was the first movie I saw in a movie theater at three years old. Um, I had to leave when the Rancor came, but I got to come back <laughs> and see it again and again and again. Like I'm legit obsessed with that series, and so this really um, was special <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But to answer your question, yes, um, there was a list that they had, and they were kind of checking them off. And then I think there was some, because some, I, I think originally I was like, I should totally do the modal nodes because I'm a music nerd. Right. And then I could make up, you know, alien music and nerd out on a whole other level. Yeah. I think it's for the best that that didn't work out. <laughs> um, because it probably would have been super nerdy. You could have gotten although two I, in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, although I, I do have, um, I got to do that later because I have two characters in the Shadow Shaper Cypher who are music nerds. And I wrote a separate novella um, called Deadlight March where they just nerd out with each other the whole time, basically, yeah. about different, you know, just musical shit that, you know, that one of them writes a song in five, which is the like the total music nerd thing to do. It's like, I wrote a song in five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was just me being able to do that. But anyway, yeah, so basically, by the time I got to the list, a lot of stuff was gone. Yeah. And I was like, ruh -ruh. <laughs> But then um, bureaucracy kind of is, again, like the linchpin of my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. How trash bureaucracy is is basically, you know, what I joke about as in life all the time. So I was like, oh, I can do this. Boom. Yeah. And, I, and I love do-backs, obviously. <laughs> well, who doesn't, really? I mean, who well, doesn't? Well, apparently, I think it says on my Wikipedia entry now, like, he mentions his love of dobacks on all panels. <laughs> <laughs> Shady. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Own it. Like, Own yeah. it. There's no, nothing no, wrong no, with no, that. You should just come play Edge of the Empire with us sometime. <laughs> Our games tend to be doback heavy. <laughs> really? I, you know, I need to... Um, I, actually, I decided, like, now that I'm doing this, I'm going to buy an Xbox. So I, no, I, like, no. <laughs> I haven't been much of it. I love games, but I also love, like, paying the rent and... Like, <laughs> If I get it, if I get a game system right now, it won't happen. Like I won't finish both. So I'm trying to measure that out. But next year, I plan to have a, a luxurious year next year, which includes lots of writing and hopefully some Star Wars gameplay. And another Star Wars project that you. Another Star Wars project. That we I get to find out what it is. Nothing about. I wish I could tell you guys. So bad. <laughs> but um, I am writing. I can say that I'm writing a full-length novel. Awesome. Star Wars, and it's gonna be bananas. 
when that was when that was announced, I think it immediately shot to my number one, like most anticipated Uh-oh. book. So I don't wow. even know. I don't even know if they've announced what year it's coming out. But whatever year that is, that's that's my most excited, most anticipated book for the year. The fact that I can't even talk about it, like, no, should let you know that we're not we're not, we're not going to press you. So without breaking your NDA, though. Mm-hmm. What has been, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to ask you, what was it like to work with Star Wars? Because obviously, it's, it's like a fucking dream come true, right? But what's been the most surprising thing about working in the universe for you? Something that you didn't anticipate? Ah. Um, I think I thought it would be harder. Yeah? Um, which isn't to say it was easy. Writing a book is never easy. And especially, like, on a tight deadline and everything else. But, um... I just, I think I thought I would struggle with jumping into someone else's universe a little more, even though it's a universe I know and love, and, you know, it's a really, really, really well-developed universe, and I think that's kind of what made it easier, in in a way, is that it's such a deeply conceptualized and thought-through world, Mm -hmm. Um, which, yeah, I, I just expected it to be more rigorous in terms of, like, not rigorous, that's the wrong word. It was rigorous. Um, just more of a struggle, really, to jump in and find the voice and kind of feel that out as mine. Because, yeah. um, you know, when you're writing a book, like, you really have to be in it. Um, but I just I just sort of, like, wrote a couple, like, two sample chapters when I first, first got the assignment just to feel it out. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> like, you know, and it felt really comfortable right from jump. Um, and so that was a really nice surprise, obviously. Yeah. So writing for Star Wars, though, I mean, as as much fun as it can, it probably is. I'm going to assume um, it, it comes with its other challenges, you know, because it's this highly regulated franchise. It's you've got a lot of oversight from Story Group, from Lucasfilm. You, it's an IP you don't own. You know what I mean? You're just playing right. in someone else's sandbox. Right. I, I'm sure compared to you know your own books with your own your own world that you're creating, they each have their own rewards and frustrations, right? I right. mean, is, yeah, is, there, yeah. is there, I mean, are you, are you coming away from this experience with Star Wars saying like, yeah, that was cool, but it's not something that I want to do a lot of because I don't no, own I it? No, I want to do it more. Yeah? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have a very expansive notion of the, of the galaxy. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what, what, a number of things, like that also makes it feel really real. It's a big ass galaxy. There's one point in, in one of the prequel movies when Obi-Wan is talking and he's like, 10,000, uh, you know, other systems have joined in. And yeah. you're like, or 100,000. You're like, how many motherfuckers are there in this place? <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Um, and I think they really adhere to that concept that, like, it's a big world. I mean, one planet is huge, and there's, like, thousands of them. So um, they encourage, like, building, you know, within the aesthetic, I think, yeah. is what matters. But th- it's not like you got to stay on the core planets or, yeah. like, they don't want you to keep revisiting the same material because there's so much and it's it's real that, you know, characters and different situations would pop up in parts of the world that we haven't even heard about, in parts of the galaxy that we haven't even heard about yet. So it makes sense. I think it's like, how do you meld that new stuff and the expanding world with the stuff that we're familiar with to make it kind of click and really feel like it's part of the whole thing? Yeah. And that's, but that's fun. And that's what I love about the books especially is because they aren't afraid to explore those, you know, characters or worlds that we haven't heard of. You know, the movies kind of have to still be, you know, I mean, that's why we're getting a Han Solo movie. Like, great. Okay. Like, do we need another Han Solo movie? No, but you know, there's, do you really? (laughs) 
Um, I, I'm excited. I guess I'm just excited about it. I don't know. I don't know. What does need mean? Like, like I mean, okay. So if it were, if we could have had another movie about you know, like a brand new character, something like exploring what you're talking about, those corners of the galaxy, but with a big screen Hollywood budget, like with a Lucasfilm right. budget. Isn't that what Ryan Johnson's doing though? Well, we don't know. It's just an, a previously undone, uh, who knows what he's doing. Well, they definitely made the point that it's not within the Skywalker saga. Yeah. All, so that's interesting. Which is exciting. I'm excited does, about that. I'm excited about, I'm excited about all of it. Yeah. I, they I mean, do so much right. And that's the other thing, like, we're really living in a golden age of Star Wars. Like, they just, everything they've been doing has been really solid narratively. The books are phenomenal. Really? Like, the new canon, which is the canon, all of those are so solid. Like, from Chuck's to Delilah's to um, all the Leia books that Claudia has been doing. Like, yeah. they're gorgeous books, outside of the fact that they're really cool in Star Wars and, and very deeply entwined in the yeah. world. Um, they're they're amazing. Like yeah. they're amazing works of literature, and that's really cool. Plus, like Rebels is fantastic. Clone Wars is fantastic. Like, it's powerful stuff. So that's why I'm just like, you know, they can do whatever they want. Like, yeah. you know, I, I want them to have more black women. Yeah, I want them to have like queer relationships on screen that aren't just like potentially, possibly, maybe. Um, and I think they're going to honestly. Like, I feel like they're moving in that direction. I don't know. That's not from any inside info. My feeling is that they're moving in that direction, and they know that that's where they need to, you know, put work in. But um, they're doing amazing shit, so yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. So am I. Who am I? I mean, I'm not saying I'm still gonna go see it. I'm still excited for it. I just think it's a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, but there's there's more to come. I think yeah. if it was a if they were only doing like one yeah. other movie, I'd be like, why? Shit, not? Why not? But why not? Since there's so much happening. Right. I'm like, yeah, sure, throw Han into the mix. Um, so <laughs> you have experience. Like when you write, you write YA, you write quote unquote for adults. Um, when what do you what are the different considerations for both? Like, what do you have to? What's different? You know. Hmm. Hmm. Well, what's interesting, too, is I have a middle grade series coming out next year. Oh, um, you yeah. do? <laughs> I do, which is kind of, um, nobody knows, really. So, you know, this is exciting. Um, I also can't talk too much about that. Um, I will be able to talk about it sooner than Star Wars. <laughs> um, um, and I can say that it's historical fantasy. And I did about as much research, uh, probably a little more on it than, as I did for Star Wars. It's really a world building based um, and it takes place in the United States, in New York, in oh. fact, but um, a long time ago, a long, long time ago. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I'm really, really excited about it. So what's yeah. been interesting is now there's another uh, age group in the mix, right, to, to put against um, adult mm -hmm. and then young adult and then middle grade, which is kind of like eight to 12. Um, so that's been really fascinating, but directly between adult and young adult. I mean, I think the considerations, there's a multitude of them. And then there's also sort of, you know, if you, if you want to piss off, I know, you know, this, if you want to piss <laughs> off a pediatrician, just tell them that a child is just a small version of an adult. Like they, they hate that shit. Never say that to you. You'll get punched. I mean, not that, not that it's true, but it's just fun to watch them, you know, turn colors. But, um, yeah, and I think there's a similar kind of conversation about YA. To me, like, what I, what really, like, defines YA is the foundational crisis of whatever the story is. Um, and I feel like if the story is about a young person, you know, someone in their teens 
stepping forward actively into adulthood um, on some level and shedding away from the mythology of childhood. Um, that's that's a young adult book. That's what that is. Because um, I have, you know, in in um, in the Bolshevik Roomba series, Midnight Taxi Tango does center one of the main characters is a 16 year old girl named Kia who does come of age in the course of the book in a lot of different ways um, and comes into herself. Um, but that's not the heart of the book. That's one of the one of the three main narratives that comes together to talk about how people defeat, you know, an evil culture, cockroach dude. And so, you know, that's the heart of the book. And, it's and, awesome. It's gross. It's awesome. So gross. <laughs> Glad you read it. It's really disgusting. Um, <laughs> but that book is also not for nothing. That book is about grieving. And all three characters, as much as they're dealing with cockroach dudes, they're also dealing with loss on a profound level. And that's really the heart of the book. Um, but it came out the same year as, um, or came out a little bit after uh, Shadow Shaper, right? Which is another book about a 16-year-old girl in Brooklyn who is coming into her own. But that's the heart of the book is her, is Sierra, you know, understanding her power and stepping into it actively and understanding that, like, the world is not the one she thought it was when she was, you know, a kid. And so that's what, that's what makes it. Um, the other stuff is, like, you know, mm. you're not going to have, like, a visual sex scene in a YA book for obvious reasons and if you want that why then it then it becomes a strategy question with shadow shaper i wanted that book to get to the widest range of kids that i could get it to so i very intentionally don't have them you know cursing and like doing stuff that's going to keep right. it off certain lists and not and not accessible to like 10 year olds um because of mostly because of parental stuff or whatever which is fine um and they didn't at that point they didn't feel like they needed to swear um, and they didn't need to be out drinking and stuff like that. So it just, it wasn't like a divergence from their characters. They just didn't have to swear in that book. Um, by the time we get to Shadow House Full, they're a little, you know, it's not like they're any more grown up, but like the, the book is, is moving forward. The series is moving forward rather. And I had done what I needed to do with Shadow Shaper. And it was less important that Shadow House Fall, like, you know, reaches many young people, younger, younger people. And more important that it really stayed true to like their anger and they're different, um, the things they were going through at the moment, which, you know, had them swearing. So there's ranges within YA. Um, and then in middle grade, to me, I just feel like for my particular style of middle grade, like it's very adventure based and very movement oriented and action um, oriented. And like, that's also from my experience of teaching <laughs> kids because those, <laughs> they don't stop moving, you know, like they are in constant motion, especially that age range of like, you know, 10 and 12 and stuff. They're just constantly like, you know, bouncing off things and flying around the room. <laughs> but they're totally, like, able to do that and maintain focus. And I think what we don't get as adults sometimes is that you can have a room that appears outwardly in total chaos, but is actually full of kids, like, learning very intensely, you know, lots of stuff and actually paying yeah. attention. Um, they're just really excited, and the way they express their excitement is through movement, whereas the way adults <laughs> express excitement, I mean, I, was, I move a lot. I'm Cuban. That's what we do. But, um, you know, adults are a little bit more, you know, and, and even teenagers, I think, tend to sort of take a moment and, like, reflect and write things down and, like, really process stuff. Um, kids process in motion and through movement. And so that's what happens, you know, in, in this middle grade series. There's a lot more, it's a lot more fast-paced in terms of action. It still deals with a lot of deep stuff. It's about, you know, race in America and, um, and a lot of things like that and history. Um, but it, 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 it happens in terms of through, through the lens of action more so. So you've you've mentioned New York a bunch of times. You live in New York. Your books tend to be set in New York, but New York is almost it's more than a setting. It's almost a character, different parts for different stories. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about 
you know, how that happens and how you make a place alive like that. Sure. Well, a place is really made up of its people, right? Um, and I think that's one element that really um, d deserves and requires focus when you're building, when you're doing world building. It's like, who lives there and what do they do and how do they contribute to the world that they live in? Because um, I think we tend to sort of dis detach sometimes, like the people from it, from their place. Um, and not for nothing, but there's a politics, there's politics in that sense of detachment and in that um, faulty world building in that um, the whole idea of gentrification, right, which is also not for nothing, a, a concept that's very rarely dealt with in urban fantasy, um, which is one of the reasons that I felt it really important to be a part of the shadow shaper world, also because it's true. And it <laughs> seems ridiculous to write about Brooklyn and not talk about gentrification because it's everywhere you look. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that's being told in the faces of the buildings that you pass um, in on a street, on a block. You know, you'll have um, a fancy um, bakery next to a nail salon, next to a liquor store, next to a storefront church, next to a wine shop. And, you know, all in one block. And, yeah. and some of those places have been there for like decades and some just got there last week. And th that tells a story, right? And then who's going into which ones tells a story. And it's not a story that you have to be a social scientist to understand. I think if you go anywhere, I, I know this because I, I go places and I do workshops on these topics and everyone understands what that means um, in any part of America. Um, it's a language that the street speaks. And I think that we, we can tell that story in a book without getting all extra and you know academic or, um, or even preachy in any way because it's a true story and people understand it and, and know it. And so it's worth talking about. And it, and it matters then on the emotional level for a character because Sierra is living in a place that doesn't feel like home anymore, even though geographically it's where she's always been. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's what I mean by like the, the, this, this sense of detachment. Because when people say they want to uplift a community, um, it depends who's talking. And it depends what community they mean. A lot of times by community or neighborhood, they just mean the buildings. They mean like clean up the streets, you know, pour money into a community that lost money during the Great White Flight and fancy it up. Meanwhile, the rents are going up, so the people who live there have to leave. So they're not talking about uplifting the people of the community. They're talking about making it feel more safe for them as white people. And that's a very important conversation that we have to have when we're thinking about world building, because community is built out of people, not pretty buildings. Um, so I think that matters. Um, it sounds very political, because it is, but it's also a craft conversation that we have to be having, because we're building worlds, right? Like, even if we're not writing about Brooklyn, um, we're always creating worlds, and worlds are always made out of people who live there. Um, and there's always power, you know, in conflict in worlds. It doesn't mean there's a war happening, not a military war, but there's, you know, there's conflict and crisis in the streets of any American city. Um, there's change happening. Um, there's, you know, old versus new. There's, there's uh, you know, institutions bumping up against each other. And I think that makes for good world building if we're, if, we're, if we're really looking at it and understanding how that affects the world, you know, again, on the street. Um, no place really remains static. But we have these kind of images of a place that's always been the same forever and the little village and everything and nothing ever changes. There's constant change even in those little villages. Um, and we do world building better when we understand that and let it bleed into the page and into the story. So you have been a vocal proponent of having more diversity among the characters. And characters, obviously, when you're doing world building, you know, you can have the greatest world in the world that you can imagine, but you got to yeah. put people into it. Um, right. 
and, and so I'm, I'm this is uh, this has come up recently and it's become a sensitive issue and I'm just wondering what your advice to other writers would be who who want to do right by the reader and want to have more diversity in their characters but they're not necessarily comfortable quote unquote writing what they know you know what I mean right. you know, they, right, right. they want to they want to break out of that they you know they can't yeah. just be limited to writing what they know no, um, I mean you've included you know you talked about Sierra you've included a female protagonist in your books and that's not necessarily writing what you know so nope. how, how do people do that like how do writers break out and and write about an experience that they don't they didn't live right well let me first shout out when I wrote an essay on the topic so mm-hmm. I want to kind of put that into um, conversation because that's a better answer than whatever one I can give offhand okay um, but it's on BuzzFeed and it's called 12 Fundamentals of Writing the Other and the Self and maybe you can link to it I will absolutely link to it yeah but that that literally like the whole thing is an answer direct answer to that question but I will say that the I think if you strip it down what it comes to is truly being able to listen um, uh, there's a lot of levels to it I think dealing with the concept of power in a very serious way in a very thoughtful and analytical way is a part of it. Um, I think understanding the history of, of the stereotype is important. I think we have an over-reliance on sort of simple facts and less on an analysis. Um, and that matters. I think we can be very ahistorical and that's important to override. Um, but ultimately all of those things can fall under the category of being able to truly listen. Um, both to yourself and to the world, and specifically to the people who you're representing. Um, and I think we're really bad at that. I think particularly um, men suck at that because we're taught that we already know everything. So why would we listen? You know, and you see that happening in very real time in terms of the kind of um, alleg- the harassment stuff that's going on right now, and it's always been going on, but it's coming out right now. Um, a lot of that is a, a, a failure of patriarchy to really understand power and listening and, you know, to be really about domination more than anything else. Um, So I think writers, you know, of any sort of form of privilege, and everyone lives in in a different um, crossroad of privilege and and oppression, I think it it means like understanding exactly where we stand and then being able to truly step back and take a deep breath and listen in the deeper sense, again, not just so that we can respond, but so that we can actually take things in and hear them and um, let them change us and change our entrenched views and be open to that. Um, And it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it it does require soul-searching. And I think that's why it's hard, Um, because I think people tend to want, like, a clear answer and a direct, like, a checklist that you can be like, all right, I did that, I did that, I did my research, I read 75 books, you know, I interviewed 12 people, good, you know, I got it. Uh, there's no, you know, or even you see this happen with beta readers too, or sensitivity readers, um, where like that people will be like, well, I got a sensitivity reader, and they're from that community, and so I should be good, right? And then when things go wrong, they're like, but I had a sensitivity reader, and I understand that. That's, you know, uh, but ultimately it always falls on us and the writer, and um, it re- again it requires us to really go deeper than I think we're used to going or we're taught to go, um, both internally and externally, and that's hard. Like yeah. that's really hard. And it's not taught in MFA programs. It's not the kind of thing that you will, you know, see in like writer's digest generally when they're talking about like how to do this stuff now that they finally are. Um, 
but I, I, I do think that's a big piece of it. And I think that that's a, a spiritual journey too, um, yeah. in a way. So for me, I, I was an organizer before I was a writer and a lot of that work around my own privilege and around other people's privilege and around speaking truth to power um, came from my experience as an organizer. So I'd done a lot of that work when I came to the page and I still had a lot more to do. Mm. Um, as I was writing Shadow Shaper, I really, you know, took the time during that lengthy process to like understand what it meant to be writing a character who, as you pointed out, is a, you know, a girl, a teenage girl, Afro-Latina, which I'm not, um, you know, from Brooklyn, which I'm not. Um, and so a lot of that did require me to like soul search and really understand what I was doing. Um, I think it requires you to also be involved in the community in a way that's deeper than just throwing them on the page. Um, you know, you'll have writers that, that have nothing to say about, extrajudicial police killings of black folks um but want to write black characters you know like these are lives and deaths deaths that are happening in real time in front of our faces being repeated on over and over you know on twitter and in gifs and everywhere else or gifs depending on who you are and <laughs> that like you know you can't just there's no you know it's like uh howard zinn said you can't be neutral on a moving train yeah. um you want to write characters but you don't want to have anything to do with the community there's something going on yeah. Are there any particular, I'm going to say women in particular, but branch out if you want, that helped you get there? Because I have no, your female characters are so well written. Oh, thank you. I appreciate um, it. You know, were there women in your life who are models or who you actually, you know, had this discussion with and who took part in this journey that you were having? Sure. Um, lots, absolutely. Um, <laughs> certainly my mom, like, is a huge just influence on me as a person, and she's very, like, literary inclined. She kind of, like, both her and my dad raised me, um, on books, like, tons of books, and that's important. Um, and just who she is, I think, is just a, a strong and brilliant person, for sure, goes into a lot of my books. She actually shares a birthday with Sierra. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not, they're not the same person, but, you know, that's there. But um, also, I've just always had really amazing um, black women swoop out of kind of the ether and mentor me. Um, and that has really affected my writing. And mentor in the, in the deeper sense of like, you know, not just like help me learn how to be a better writer, but just help me learn how to navigate, you know, an industry that wasn't going to necessarily be friendly to me um, as a writer of color, writing characters of color particularly. And so, you know, whether it was Octavia Butler, who was dead by the time I started writing, but certainly is a kind of spiritual mentor to me in terms of like paving the way and lighting the path. Um, Cherie Renee Thomas, who's an amazing editor and writer who did the Black Matter anthology, um, mm -hmm. which is 100 years of speculative fiction in the African diaspora. That's amazing. She really, um, I took a class with her and she really like went out of her way to just take me under her wing. Tanana Reeve Du, um, Jacqueline Woodson, they're just these amazing women who have just shown me the way in a lot of in a lot of ways, and I definitely um, listen to them. And then just you know my friends, like there's just I just have a core group of friends who I who I go to um, for help, definitely on characters' hair, and also just <laughs> general. I mean, you know, when I write a character, <laughs> I'm writing the other. Let alone <laughs> I feel your um, pain. Yeah. <laughs> you know absolutely i think you know it requires like and and i think it's important that it be intergenerational um and, and i also think like that intergenerational hero question is really big because that's one thing 
you know, we often just don't get and don't get to see. And it's, it's cool to have that. Um, I try to have communities built up on um, lots of different age ranges because I think that's one of the coolest things. And it's, it's important to see that in books. What do you like to read when you have time? <laughs> um, everything. Uh, I really do try to read widely. And I love doing something like I love balancing a nonfiction with like a epic fantasy, you know, that, just to see how they kind of speak to each other. Um, so I kind of go all over the map. Um, I've been a big history buff in the past couple of years, mostly like Civil War stuff. Um, I love mythology. I love Star Wars books. Like both, and it's great because it just like it's it's research now. Yeah. But I would totally read them and love them anyway. So. And great. all of, all of those things feed into each other too. Like you know, like Civil War, <laughs> mythology, and Star Wars. Like those are basically the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. I love what um, Claudia did in, in Bloodline. Yeah. That whole conversation about the relics of the Empire and the way that it speaks to the whole Confederate statues thing. I mean, and she did that before they were really starting to come yep. down, which yep. is even more impressive. Um, but absolutely, like, yeah, they they absolutely tie into each other. And that's what's so cool is that they're all in conversation. When I was a kid, my favorite two books ever, and I mean like 10, 11, um, were The Iliad and All the President's Men. Wow. I know. I was a super nerd. That's <laughs> those books. Like, they were so cool to me. Um, and it, it, but they're telling similar stories. They're about power breaking down and like the deep sort of humanity, the deeply flawed humanity of, you know, systems and creatures that are supposed to be flawless, but aren't. And, and that's, a, that's an amazing story, you know, um, cause it's true and it's cool and there's magic and there's power, you know, flying around and there's like, you know, lives getting disrupted and all that stuff that makes stories good. Uh, plus, there's this underlying depth to it that speaks to something we all see happen. Yeah. Um, it, so one of the most common questions I, I would assume that authors get asked is, you know, what advice do you have for kids who want to be writers or for young writers who are just starting out? And I think, for the most part, the answers you get are the same. Read and write. You know, read a lot, write a lot. And that's that's how, that's where you start. But I think for like kids especially who don't get any further guidance than that, they just yes. tend to mimic what they read. You know, they don't have any you're like, okay, so I'm reading a lot and then I'm going to write a lot and I'm going to write exactly what I read. And, you know, right. and as you grow up, you know, you're you see that like, you know, themes, style, structure, it's a lot of it becomes very derivative. Like, how do you avoid that? Right. Well, that's interesting because that's not my advice that I would give. Oh, wow. So I, then, <laughs> yeah. okay, what is your advice? <laughs> well, I would say I would say live a lot. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a little bit in counter to some of that. I mean, uh, another essay that I have out there um, is called Writing Begins with Forgiveness. Um, it's on a site called Seven Scribes. And it's really about trying to take down the very bad advice of write every day that you see in a lot of writing manuals, including my favorite on writing by Stephen King, yeah. who's like, write every single day. Um, and I think that's trash advice. I think it's really bad advice. Um, I think it's cool if you can do that. I'm not against it. Yeah. But um, I think as a as a idea of something you're supposed to be doing, I think it's very harmful because most people can't and don't and probably shouldn't write every day. Um, and the idea that they should be is kind of, I think, a greater barrier to them actually becoming a writer than skipping a day mm -hmm. people act like skipping a day is like a gateway drone to like becoming <laughs> a, 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 like flipping burgers for the rest of your life <laughs> like you, i miss saturday it's a wrap my career is over you know, 
And it's like funny, but it's also like it's not if you think about people carrying that with them to the next day on Sunday when they sit down to write. And instead of putting their energy towards creativity, they're feeling guilt and shame. And they're feeling like, what was I doing on Saturday instead of writing? Oh, my God, I was living my life and being a human being and like, you know, being a part of the world instead of sitting in front of a keyboard. Oh, no, I feel bad about that. That's not cool. That's not healthy. You know, it's not a good outlook. Um, and I, I just think we, we don't just need to build writers. We need to build healthy human beings who also write well. Um, that's a different thing, um, unfortunately. Because we've also long labored under this idea of the writer as alcoholic white dude in the woods. <laughs> you know, who preys on teenage girls. Like, that's really, like, the Salinger model is, like, what we see. Uh, what what I know when I was coming up, like, that's kind of what there was. Like, Hemingway, Salinger-type dudes whose lives were disasters and, you know, were really disgusting people in a lot of ways. And we're pretty good writers, too. And, okay, so what do we do with that? Like, there's a lot of other models. There's a lot of other ways to be a writer, including being happy and like having happy relationships, you know, and like sacrilege and, and, right, and, and not harassing women. Like, you know, I feel like that should be part of the model of being a writer. Being a woman should be part of the model. You know? <laughs> um, or being just not a man, you know, like yeah. on that spectrum anywhere besides just this straight dude. Um, so that, um, but I do think like in that advice of like, read all the time and when you're not reading write all the time which is basically what Stephen King is saying we there's the fundamental piece of living that is missing and like you exactly what you said is that you, you can get very regurgitative mm -hmm. um, when all you do is read and write you have to have something to write about um, and usually that's going to be you know having your heart broken and breaking someone else's heart and like being out in the world and being having friends like you can't you know you you have to be a part of the world in order to be a good writer like i will swear that to the day i die and maybe you only have one book in you maybe you have a bunch of essays or short stories in you you know it's just not going to be this singular model to me the best writing advice ever and the best life advice is from um, a poem by a guy named antonio machado who said um caminante no hay camino se hace el camino al andar which means walker or journeyman there is no path you make the path by walking it mm. that's it right there like that's true of career that's true of every book that you write that's true of every story you tell you have to trust the story you have to trust your trajectory you have to allow yourself to form the path that you walk by walking it and it's terrifying yes it's not an easy way but it's a better way than being like all right i'm gonna be the next stephen king you know i'm gonna be the next you know, i'm gonna be the Latin Neil Gaiman. The fuck does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, like, that's crazy. It's a terrible idea. Um, but I think we get we get caught up in that. And then methodology is the same thing. Some people write once a week or once a month. And then, you know, Juno Diaz takes 10 years to put out a book. But when he does it, it wins the Pulitzer Prize. You know what I mean? Like, who's going to tell him he has a bad method? Yeah. Nobody. They, they probably have until he put out the book and exactly. ruled the world. Exactly. You know, and that's what it is. Like, sometimes you got to find, you always really have to find your method and find your um, rhythm and, and then do that. But you can't get caught up on, you know, shame, which is a lie um, that someone else told you about yourself as an ISN city. You got me all riled up. No, that's that's amazing. <laughs> and I, we're also, I've, I've gotten my time run out, too. So. You, can, you can go. This is fun. You can ask me another question. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm torn at this point because I think that was such a perfect way to end. Um, <laughs> it was a, a perfect exclamation point at the end of the conversation. So that's that's amazing. <laughs> Daniel, I'm glad you're doing <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. I really had a great time. This <laughs> was fun. <laughs>
Okay, so I have a pitch that I wish I was in on the interview. I, I, I wonder if he's ever dabbled into screenwriting. If not, I want to pitch him a pilot for a show. Okay. It's going to be a Star Wars HR type show, but set like The Office. Oh my god. Where they like, like, <laughs> they like, they like break the fourth wall and look at the screen? Yes, 100%. Like, oh, I bet he would be all over that. Oh my gosh. And like, it would make more sense because in The Office, like, you kind of got the feeling that, like, why is this camera crew still following everybody around? Right. But, like, right. in, in there, like, it could be, like, a little droid just following everybody, floating exactly. around. Like, like the droids from episode one that Darth Maul sent out, they just kind of, yes. like, really small and they floated around. And, and like, mm-hmm. the events of the episodes could be happening kind of in the background. Like, you don't, they're not the central part of the story. It's just a person that works. Yeah. You know what I mean? It works on the ship or something, and... You know, the stuff is kind of happening behind them. Oh, my God. Bro. Well, I mean, they all get monitored by the Imperial Security Bureau. Yeah. It could be that. Yeah. Yes, oh, my God. True. This is brilliant. I love it. Let's do it. Let, let's let's call up the Chi. And we'll <laughs> on the phone. That's our nickname for Leland Chi. I don't, I don't well, that's Justin's, that's Justin's nickname for Leland Chi. <laughs> and I know Leland Chi has added it to us to his his Star Wars podcast list. So, Leland, if you're listening, we call you the Chi. Because <laughs> We have that. We're, we're so we love you. And the day after this episode drops, we're gonna get cut from that list because of that. <laughs> You'll just know silently see it gone. It's like the chi, I was called that in elementary school. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for coming back every single week. And also, make sure you go check out our new website, thegbbpodcast.com. It's not anything crazy, but it has we're we're slowly putting all of our episodes onto it. You can see a little biographies and you can catch a marvelous picture of jamie on there it's, it's a, no you can't actually but it's it's nice to have a home that's yeah. our home you know it's not we're not i mean we love geek dad we love that geek dad gave us the place to talk for what going on three years now but we, it's nice to have our own additional place to sort of show people like this is our house yeah it's hard. It's really, honestly, it's really hard when someone's like, "Oh, you have a podcast. What's your website?" Yeah. And you like send them to the Geek Dad Archive. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. It's kind of like, uh, well, we do have one. I promise. <laughs> I was just thinking we should actually add a little section under the host section for guest hosts and have little biographies for absolutely because we have recurring guest hosts. So yes, it might be nice. Yeah, Can absolutely. Little shout out. We'll do that. Little shout out for our millions of listeners. All right, guys. You can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast as well as Facebook. I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots and I'm Shiri at SW Sondheimer. And actually, now you can also find me under Irate Corvus because I needed a cosplay name. Irate well, Corvus. Yeah, Angry Raven. Nice. <laughs> nice. I love it. <laughs> All right, so you can go. F- <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right, so you can go find her there. (laughs) The Angry Raven. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Take care. (laughs) I love it. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad. 